for the opportunity to come and preach the word, and um, we'll pray that God would work in our hearts. Our passage this morning is in Genesis chapter 13 and 14. So we've got two chapters to cover. We've got a lot of ground to cover, uh, but by God's grace, um, we'll, we'll do that. As you're turning there, let me, let me just pray for us. Father, I am thankful for your word. I'm thankful you've given it to us. I'm thankful that you have given it to us so that we would know you and that we would learn about who you are and about your promises to us, your blessings that you promised to us. And Father, I pray this morning that we would find hope in that blessing that you have promised to us. Help us to learn from the life of Abraham. May your name be glorified here this morning in the name of Christ exalted. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. So this morning I want us to think about our text as a drama. Because in reality it is a drama. It's a narrative. It's a a story, and it's a story that was being told by Moses to the people of Israel not too long before they would enter the promised land. And I want to encourage us to use our minds to engage this story that God has given to us. And as we read this story, uh, we wanna, I want to break it down into six different scenes to kind of break up the text for us. So we have six different scenes, not six points, but six scenes, I have one point, and I hope to explain and apply that point through the 16, six scenes of our story. And usually, when somebody tells a story, they start from the beginning. Uh, but this morning, I want us to start in scene five. Uh, and the reason I want to do this is to kind of trigger our curiosity as to what has happened in uh, scenes one, two, three, and four that leads up to and culminates in scene 5. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 14, verses 10 through 16, and those verses will be on the screen. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, or tar pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all their provisions, and they went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and they went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he, defi- he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus, which is just outside that promised land. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Now you may remember from last week Um, that God had made a promise to Abram that he would bless him and that he would give him a land and an offspring and that all the nations would be blessed through him. And you will recall that Abram had faith that God would make good on this promise. And so Abram journeyed from his country and from his land to the land that God promised he would give him and bless him in. But you will also recall 
that a severe famine plagues that land. And Abram's faith in God's promise to bless him in that land, it wavers, it falters, it weakens. And so he leaves the land of blessing, and he makes a journey down to Egypt. Abram took matters into his own hands. In other words, Abram does not believe that he will receive the blessing that God promises him. So he tries to conjure up a blessing for himself, but his plan fails, and it ends with disaster and shame. So our question this morning that we must answer is, what causes Abram's faith to go from, or what causes him to go from having a weak faith to having a courageous faith? faith or a strong faith? What makes him doubt God's promise and leave the land during the famine to later pursuing this vicious, wicked army with only 318 men? Why do we see a fickle faith in chapter 12 and see a courageous faith in chapter 14? It is my objective this morning to help us see what it is that causes Abram's faith in God's promise to go from fickle to courageous. Why his faith severely falters in one instant, but triumphantly endures in another. Let me ask you this this morning. Is your faith weak? Is your faith in God's promised blessing? Is it wavering? And do you ever wonder why, maybe you can identify with me here and wonder why you teeter back and forth from trusting God fully in one situation to completely removing Him from another situation, trying to handle everything in your own power and wisdom and insight. Well, let us remember this morning that God's promise to us is certain, and God's promise to Abram is certain. It is 100% going to happen no matter what, because God's promise is not dependent on Abram or on Abram's faith. God's promise to Abram is certain because it depended fully on God and not in Abram's ability to believe God. And that is a good thing because Abram's faith is fickle. His faith wavers. But we will see that by God's grace, it is growing. Abram's faith is a growing faith. And we will see that his faith grow stronger when he doesn't just see his present circumstances as present circumstances. Rather, his faith grows stronger when he looks at his present circumstances through the lens of what God has promised to bless him with. When he engages life in trials and circumstances with his eyes on the blessing and not on the present situation, God gives him a glimpse of the blessing he promised, and Abram begins to taste that blessing. He gets a sneak peek of what the, the blessing that God has promised to him, and his faith becomes more courageous. And just like Abram's faith is a growing faith, our faith is a growing faith. God's promise to us is certain. It is sure. And like Abram, We must not see our present circumstances as just present circumstances and try to hunker down and barrel through them. Rather, we must look at our present circumstances through the lens of what God has promised us 
the blessing that He has promised to us. And when we do so, we will get a little taste of that future blessing. And our faith will become more and more courageous and less and less fickle. So let's pick up the story in chapter 13, verse 1. I have six scenes, like I've said, and this is scene 1. Look at verse 1 of chapter 13, and Moses writes, So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. So in chapter 12, you will recall that things did not go well for Abram as he was in Egypt, and Pharaoh kicked him out of the land. And so here we see Abram going back to the land that God has promised. Now I want you to just Picture this scene. This is a story. Let's use our imaginations and think about what is going on here. Abram's faith in God's promise compels him to make the journey back to that land, the, the land that God told him to go. And, and let me just say this. Abram and Sarai, they didn't just jump on a horse or a camel and just ride across the desert, desert like it was like no big deal. No, this, this journey was significant. There was trials, there was troubles. It was about 450 miles in length, and they obviously had no paved road at that time, and they had lots of livestock and gold and silver. So to kind of give us something to compare it to, let's think about all of us in this room, all of the kids in the nursery, and then we acquire some, some horses and cattle and whatever else that might have been that they traveled with back then. And let's think about us making this track from Phoenix, Arizona, all the way up to Bryce Canyon, Utah. That is a significant distance. That is a significant journey, and that is the journey that Abram goes on, and it, is, uh, it took a lot of faith, faith for him to embark on this journey. Now let's look at scene two, verse five. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left, the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the, to the left. Think about the scene here. Think about scene two. Abram knows that God will give him this land. He trusts that God will make good on his promise to bless him. So he does not have a tight grip on the land that Lot will decide to choose for himself. His faith in God's promise gives him full assurance that this land will belong to him and to his offspring forever. But it would not come to pass until God's perfect timing. The blessing 
has not yet been received. The promise has not yet been fulfilled, but he trusts in God's sovereign timing that he would indeed receive this blessing. And we need to understand clearly that God's promise is certain. It is sure. It is true. It will come to pass in his timing. But Abram has not begin, begun to really see it come to fruition. He is living by faith. He's not living by sight. And this is the opposite of his nephew Lot. Lot lives by sight. And let's take a moment to see what it looks like to live by sight. Let, let's, let's get Lot's perspective on life. And this is scene number three, verse 10. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Now let's, let's take note of some of the language that is used here in this paragraph. Lot saw and he chose. He took. Lot saw the land and he took the land. God did not give it to him. Nonetheless, he took it because it seemed promising and good. And this language of this Saul and took should remind us of Genesis 3 when Eve saw the fruit and she saw that it was good and she took the fruit and Adam with her. We should recognize that Lot's choice was unwise and, in, and in, it, indeed it was wicked. And it only gets worse as Moses goes on to describe the scene here. He says that Lot journeyed east. And as Nate rightly stated two weeks ago, thus far in the book of Genesis, when someone journeys east, they are in a sense moving away from God's presence. Indeed, that is what Lot did. He moves as far as Sodom, a place where the sinners were pervasively wicked. And of course, we will see the consequences of Lot's actions today, uh, but more fully in chapter 19. But let's get back to Abram. Let's get back to what it looks like to live by faith. Let's continue to examine Abram's courageous faith. Scene 4. Look at verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Now let's take a moment and envision this scene. God tells Abram to walk through the land, the, the length and the breadth of it, to try to help us understand what this might have looked like. Maybe you guys can remember a time where you moved into a new home. 
Just recently, Christian and I have moved into a new home, and as we're putting all the furniture where we like it, and we're getting all the decorations where they need to go, and you finish up a room, you look at the room, and you kind of just take it all in. It's like, man, that's good. I like it. I like it a lot. And there's a sense of satisfaction, and a sense of belonging, and a sense of this is mine, and this is what Abram was feeling as he's walking through the land that God had promised to bless him in. And this wasn't just any land. The Scriptures teach us that this is a land that was flowing with milk and honey. So God is graciously giving Abram a glimpse of what this blessing will be like that is certain to come to him at some point in the future. And this small taste of the blessing presses Abram into a deeper, stronger, more committed, more courageous faith. Scene four is a beautiful picture of Abram getting a taste of his future blessing. And in scene five, where we just read a few minutes ago, we see that this future blessing causes him to live radically different. And, and let, me, let me just give a summary of these first nine verses and, and save us all from reading the names there and then recap the, the verses 10 through 16 that we read at the beginning. So what was going on here is that King uh, Kedlomayar uh, and his three cronies um, decided to go on a conquest and uh, engage in wars and battles with six different people groups in six different parts of the ancient Near East and they defeated all of them. And this all culminates in the Valley of Sedim, we just read that, where they engage with, with the king of Sodom and the four kings with him, and they wage war, and the king of Elam, Kedalomayar, uh, comes out on top, comes out in victory, but he takes Lot and all of Lot's possessions, and that causes Abram to go into action, to engage in the war with King Ketelemear. So we have looked at how Abram's faith caused him to make an unthinkable journey and how his faith has caused him to give away an unthinkable amount of land. And now we see that Abram's faith causes him to engage in an unthinkable battle. Abram gathers 318 men and engages in this war. And what happens? Abram is the victor. Why? Because God's promise is certain. And we, we must note that Abram doesn't win the battle because his faith is unwavering. He wins the battle because God's promise is unwavering. And Abram trusts that promise. Abram's faith was not in his ability to win the battle, but in God's ability to fulfill his promise. Abram did not look at his present situation and become defeated. No, he took action. His faith in the promise causes him to live in a radically different way. Now we're going to move on to scene six. And there's a, there's a lot of deep theology in these next several verses that we're not going to be able to cover this morning, but I would encourage you to do that uh, maybe later today. But, but let's read this story here, scene 6, verse 17 of chapter 14. 
After his return from the defeat of Ketelomaiar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him, that is Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Melchizedek, the priest of God Most High, pronounces a blessing on Abram. And he also pronounces a blessing or a praise to God, saying that he is the creator and the sustainer of all that has been created. In this statement by Melchizedek, we can see that God is all-powerful and all things belong to him. And Abram stood to receive the blessing that was promised by the all-possessing, all-powerful God of the universe. And we see again that Abram's faith is, to, is put into action. Abram gives a tenth of everything to Melchizedek, and in fact, that is a tenth of everything to God as he was the priest of God Most High. And let's finish up scene six here. Look at verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner and Eskel and Mamre take their share. Abram again exemplifies a steady faith in God, a courageous faith. He wants everyone to know that his blessing is from God and not from man. Abram knew God's promise was certain. So in these six scenes of our drama, of our story, we have discovered what it was that caused Abram to go from having a fickle faith in chapter 12 to having a courageous faith. It is his Faith in God's promise. And Abram reorients his entire life around what God promised him. And as he does so, God gives him a small taste of the blessing that is sure to come. And Abram's faith grows. So I've argued this point this morning using this text. God's promise is certain. Abram's faith is fickle, but by God's grace, it is growing. But lest there be any misunderstanding this morning, Abram's faith was not a perfect faith. In fact, we will see just next week that his faith wavers. It, it falters. Again, the only person who has ever lived, a perfect, lived out their life in a, in a perfect faith was the God-man, Jesus Christ. But we can indeed learn from the life of Abram. What can we learn? What can we learn as we examine Abram's life? Well, the first thing we need to do is we need to establish what blessing has God promised to us. Then we need to establish when that blessing will come to fulfillment. 
And once we do that, we can determine how we should live our lives in faith. And in doing this, we will also be able to see a little bit more clearly some of the glimpses, some of the taste of that promised blessing that God gives to us. And, at, and just like Abraham, by God's grace, we will grow in our faith. And now we could, we could look at a host of passages this morning in the New Testament to see what the promised blessing is for us. But I'm going to limit it to just two. We'll look first at what James says and then what Peter says. James says in chapter 1, verse 12, Blessed, there it is, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under the trial, under the present situation. For when he has stood the test of, or when he has stood, he will receive, he will receive the crown of life. That's a future. He will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. So what Peter says in 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. That's the beginning of our salvation. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope, this future, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance, future, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, that is kept in heaven for you. And you, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's a future. So what blessing does God promise to us? He promises us the crown of life. He promises us an inheritance that is imperishable, unfading, and undefiled. He promises us a salvation that is yet to be revealed. And when will we, will, we, will we receive this salvation? When will we receive the crown of life? Well, it's not in this life. And it's not right after death. Rather, in, it is when Christ returns. We will not receive the full blessing until the return of Christ. So then the blessing is the future of our salvation that we will, we will fully receive when Christ returns. This means we should not try in our own strength to conjure up our blessed life now. When we try to experience our own man-made blessing in this life, we look for God's blessing in the wrong places and our faith becomes feeble and weak and it falters. Our blessing is in the future. In fact, Paul, to, to, to make this state, statement even more clear, says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19, he says, if in Christ, if in our salvation we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. What gives Paul the confidence to say this? Well, he knows that a Christian's blessing is in the future. And he also knows that Christians are commanded to engage in the mission of Christ, which will indeed bring suffering, not blessing. The blessing is certain. It will come. But in the meantime, we need to remember the gospel of our salvation in our present suffering. See, the gospel is not just a message that 
saves you at some point in time, and then you kind of leave it alone and you don't think about it anymore. No, the gospel is the promise that God has given to His people to endure through the trials and endure through the suffering. So if we are not to be looking for the full gamut of God's blessing in this life, what should we spend all of our time doing? I would encourage you to live by faith as you engage in the mission of Christ. We say here, engage people to put Jesus first for the sake of others. And you must live by faith because you will endure suffering and you will endure trials and you will endure heartaches. But the good news is this. As you do this, as you go through the suffering, you get a little glimpse. You get a little taste. You get a little sneak peek of that future salvation. You will experience an inexpressible joy, an otherworldly joy. It cannot be explained logically. It can only be explained by faith that God's promised blessing is coming and it is near. And it is so near that you can taste it. Paul says in Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14, In Christ, in your salvation, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Promised Holy Spirit. Who is the guarantee or the down payment of our inheritance. The inheritance that's in the future. And He is the guarantee or the down payment of our inheritance until we acquire full possession of it to the praise of His glory. When God graciously puts us through suffering by the power of the Holy Spirit, we get a taste of the future glory of our salvation. James says trials and suffering should be joyful because of the end result of that trial. And Peter says that we go through suffering with the result being praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And Paul says that he does not even consider the suffering of this present time worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Suffering comes, but by God's grace, we get a glimpse of the future glory of our salvation through it. If you are a Christian here this morning, I have two pieces of good news for you. First, this life ain't the blessing. Is that good news? This life is not the blessing. And secondly, the blessing is sure. It is true. And it is glorious. So when famine comes, what are you going to do? Will you doubt God's promise of blessing and trust in your own wisdom and ability and insight? Or will you stand firm, holding fast to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Will you hold fast to the promise that God has given to His people? How can a Christian have faith when divorce is turning their life upside down? They know with full assurance that their faith, their faith is in the blessing That is not in the present, but in the future. How can a Christian have faith when they're confined to a bed or a wheelchair? They know with full assurance that their blessing is not in the present, 
but in the future. How can a Christian have faith when their beloved child says, I do not believe in God anymore? Well, they know with full assurance that their blessing is not in the present, but in the future. How can a Christian parent have faith when they send their child to take the gospel to a very difficult land? They know with full assurance that their blessing is not in the present, but it is in the future. How can a Christian have faith in loneliness or in barrenness? They know with full assurance that their blessing is in the future. How can a Christian have faith when engaging in orphan care and enduring all the suffering that comes with that? They know with full assurance that their blessing is in the future. How can a Christian have faith in the midst of cancer or when their loved one is diagnosed with a terminal illness? They know with full assurance that their blessing is in the future. How can a Christian have faith in the midst of losing a loved one? They know with full assurance that the blessing is not in the present, but it comes and it will come in the future. So what does the Christian know for sure about this blessing? Well, it is from God Most High, and it is sure to come, and it will be glorious, so glorious that by faith they walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and they fear nothing because God is with them, and their faith is in the promised blessing of God. And it's still to come. The blessing of promise is coming. Christ will return. But until then, keep your focus on the future glory of your salvation, not on your present sufferings. Christian, grow in your faith. Don't look and see your present circumstances just as present circumstances. Look and see your present circumstances through what Christ has accomplished in his life, death, resurrection, and reign. And he has accomplished your salvation. And certainly that includes justification, where we are declared righteous by God. And that's a blessing in and of itself. And certainly it includes sanctification. We are progressively becoming more like Christ every day by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is a little taste of the blessing but the blessing is still to come. It is the glorification when Christ returns for his people and we enter into the presence of God and we see the Lord Jesus Christ in all his radiant beauty. And on that day, we will sing in a sweeter, more nobler song how powerful God's salvation is. If you are, if, if you are not a Christian here this morning, then I have two pieces of bad news for you this morning. Your short time on earth is the best experience that you will endure for all eternity. Think about that. Your short time on this earth is the best experience that you will have for all of eternity. Secondly, there is no blessing for you when you die. There is only God's eternal wrath and condemnation that awaits you. And my plea with you this morning is that you would put your faith in the promised blessing of God. That if you submit your life to King Jesus, 
you will indeed stand to inherit the glorious salvation that God has promised to those who love Him. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, I am thankful for Your Word. I'm thankful for the Gospel, the promise that You have given to us. Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. And we know that that will be fully recognized or realized on the day when Christ returns. Father, help us to endure our trials, endure our circumstances, endure our suffering or temptations with our focus being on the future glory of our salvation. Father, help our lives to be informed by the gospel. And Father, I pray for those who I know, and I've talked to them, and they're sitting in here, and they're just, they don't know if they're a Christian. Their faith is not in the promise of a blessing that is to come. But Father, they They await, and they stand to face your judgment. Father, I pray that you would give them grace, that you would turn and stir their affections for Christ, and that they would turn away from their sins and place their trust in the promise that you have given for those who submit their life to you. May your name be exalted here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, let's stand together.